0: This morning, we've reached that 10th final plague in our study of God's judgments on Egypt through the plagues that brought about Israel's exodus. God's plagues in Egypt exposed self-idolatry. You certainly see that in Pharaoh, don't you? He viewed himself as a god, all of Egypt viewed him as a a god and God was exposing the idol of self-idolatry in Pharaoh and self-idolatry in the Egyptians who obviously viewed themselves as one of the greatest powers on the earth because of all the vast gods that they worshipped. We've been reminding ourselves every week about chapter 5 verse 2 and that question that Pharaoh asked of Moses, who is Yahweh and why should I obey him? And every plague answers the question, who Yahweh is? What is he like? And why is it that we should obey him? One of the great dangers of self-idolatry is that it blinds us to the need of any kind of redemption. I mean, think about what redemption means. Redemption implies that we are incapable people. Redemption implies that we are insufficient and we are enslaved. The very idea of redemption, that we need redemption, suggests that we don't have enough resources in ourselves to lift ourselves out of our predicament, if we have a predicament anyway. Redemption Behind that idea is the idea that we are dependent on the resources of someone else or the value of something else more significant than we are to rescue us. If you think about redemption, it implies a lot about our inability. But self-idolatry, self-idolatry implies that I am far more capable, completely self-sufficient and enslaved to no one Self idolatry suggests that we have all the ability to be anything that we want, and we're only limited by our low self image. Self idolatry is the idea that we are independent and we simply need a greater sense of our own significance. Self idolatry makes us think that God's holiness is not that far beyond us, and our sin really isn't that significant. And that God really, God really exists to better us, not save us. Self-idolatry blinds us to the need of redemption. And we actually need redeeming. We need redeeming from our self-idolatry. We have to be redeemed. And the reality is... Only, only God, only Yahweh is capable of redeeming us. The first 12 chapters of the book of Exodus tell us who God is as the redeemer of his people. That's what these chapters are about. These first 12 chapters tell us God is the redeemer of his people. It's this very idea of redemption that is the highlight of the final plague that we begin this morning. And it reminds us that God is the only redeemer of any human life. Human life was created by God to reflect the image of God back in Genesis chapter 1. And when humanity rebelled against God... And humanity wanted their own image to be distinct from God. That's Genesis 3. Judgment was the only option unless God would actually make a way to redeem his rebellious image bearers. Only God could provide escape from his own justice. And it was his love, the love that is inherent in God. It was his own love that compelled him to save humanity from inevitable, divine, deserved justice. What is the way of escape from God's judgment for our self-exalting rebellion against our creator? Well, whatever would redeem us has to be serious enough to show how holy God is. It has to be serious enough to show how heinous sin is. Whatever way of redemption exists that would be sufficient enough has has to show us that the way of escape must meet the standard of God and it has to be enough to compensate for the very need of humanity. Whatever redeems us, the way of escape, has to restore us to the identity that we were actually created in the beginning to bear. And from the earliest days of human sinfulness, God has always provided some kind of picture, a portrait of his redemption. And that picture, that portrait of redemption is painted again for us in Exodus 12. Exodus 12 is not merely the 10th plague. In fact, as Mark was reading through it, you really don't read a lot about the plague until the end of the section that he read. It's not just about the 10th plague. It's not just about the description of how God was going to expel Israel from the land of Egypt. A lot of what we find in Exodus 12 is a description of the most central memorial event in all of Israel's history. It was a memorial to redemption. This is where Passover is established. Passover is the memorial for Israel to revel in God's redemption. Passover is all about God as humanity's only redeemer. We have to remember why God created and why he's redeeming the nation of Israel as he is. Israel was the nation chosen by God among all the other nations of the earth to demonstrate to humanity, all humanity, how God would save all the nations of the earth through his redemption. And when God redeemed Israel, this one nation, when he redeemed Israel through the Passover and the Exodus, it was a picture, it was a sign of how God would provide redemption for anyone through the ultimate seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. So Egypt's 10th plague reveals God as the sovereign redeemer of all human life. That's the picture we want to see. Now this chapter, as we study it together this week and, Lord willing, next week, it has two parts to it. The first part's found in the first 28 verses, which we're going to try to focus on this morning, and it's basically instruction. It's instruction on what to do to remember God's redemption. The last part of this chapter, verses 29 to 51, is a description of how God then actually accomplished redemption for Israel. And so we're going to follow the same roadmap in our study this week and next. This week we're going to look at the instruction about redemption. Then next week we'll look at how God accomplished that. And we'll spend uh, a lot of time next week, Lord willing, talking about how that impacts us in this era because of what Christ has done. You say, sir, you're not going to talk about Jesus at all today? Really? Did you think that? You better not think that. Now, the first half of chapter 12's focus on God as Redeemer focuses our attention on how to think about and how to respond to redemption. How are we to think about it? How are we to respond? All of these instructions, how should Israel, how should we think about God's redemption? How are we to respond to it? So that's what I want us to to look at this morning. These two critical Considerations about God as the sovereign redeemer of life. Just two considerations this morning about God as the sovereign redeemer of life. And the first thing we want to look at is how to think about God's redemption. How should we think about it? Before you ever get to that 10th plague, God says, Here's, I want you to think about this in very explicit terms. Now you have to realize, Israel had never done anything quite like this before. Yes, I I get it. There have been sacrifices throughout human history. We see Abraham making sacrifices. Yes, there have been sacrifices. One of the oldest characters in the Bible is likely Job. And you remember Job in the opening chapters of the book of Job. And he's making sacrifices on behalf of his children in case they have committed some sin that needed to be atoned for. So sacrifices have been a part of people's life for a long time. But we've never seen anything quite like this. And Israel certainly hasn't done anything quite like this. There's never been this memorial act that celebrated God as a redeemer quite like this, but here it is. And think about what it took. It took 430 years of enslavement and suffering and hardship before Israel could actually then memorialize God's redemption, really relish the redemption of God. And that's why half of Exodus 12 is given not just to tell the story of how God expelled Israel from Egypt, but how God actually redeems them and really how God redeems any person from the consequences of the curse of sin. This is an important issue to keep in mind. The Passover, when we talk about it, the Passover is not merely about the exodus of Israel from Egypt. It's about redemption of humanity from sin. That's what we need to keep in mind when we think about the Passover. Ultimately, the Passover was a portrait of the future, the final, ultimate, sufficient means of God's redemption. And what is that? Better yet, who is that? It's the Messiah. Or, as John pointed out in the opening chapters of his gospel, the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. When we think about Passover, we must think about redemption. Now, how does Passover help us think about redemption? Let's talk through that. Let me give you a few ways in which Passover helps us think about God's redemption. First of all, God's redemption is foundational. It's a beginning. It's foundational. Look at verses 1 and 2 of Exodus 12. Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Interestingly, Israel had never really been identifiable as a nation until this point. Yes, I get it. They were identifiable as a people, They were called the Hebrews, but they were basically a nomadic people. When you read the book of Genesis, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob are nomads roaming around around throughout the land. They weren't necessarily viewed as an identifiable people as a nation. They didn't have a national entity establishing a calendar for them that is a beginning date for their existence as a nation would be like the official way to signify them as a national people this is their national birthday this is their July 4th this is their independence day you'll start your month and numbering your months with this day that marks your redemption isn't that interesting what defines them as a nation is redemption What defines them as a people as the first month is their redemption. Interestingly, modern Israel today does not define their year by their redemption date. They define it by the agricultural seasons. Tishri, which is the months of September, October, is the first month of the Jewish civil year right now. They celebrate Rosh Hashanah. That's the beginning of their civil year and it's the beginning, it's the ending and the beginning of the agricultural year. It's, it's kind of the making money time to celebrate. Not until the second century AD did the Jews actually beginning, begin their year with Rosh Hashanah as the civil new year. Before then it had usually been this first month which typically happens in March and April in the spring. The scriptural calendar is prescribed by God. In fact, uh, Tishri the sev- is called the seventh month in the scriptures, never the first month. Redemption actually gave Israel a joyful reason to start counting their time. Did you ever think about how they counted time as slaves? Would you even count time? Would there be any reason to do that? Every day is the same. Every day has really just no real personal identity marker for you other than we just do what Pharaoh says. As one commentator pointed out, when Pharaoh is in charge of time, one's days become an endless repetition of wearisome toil that in time may seem to go on forever. Past and future are just limitless extensions of an intolerable present, but my, what a, momental, a monumental change happens in a person's life when God is in charge of one's time instead of Pharaoh. Expectation replaces resignation. Hope replaces numbness. Rhapsody replaces routine. Celebration replaces drudgery. Why? Their calendar, their beginning, their foundation started with redemption. Every year was not a reminder that there's hope on the horizon. Every year was God has saved us. God has saved us. Made me think of Paul's statement in 2 Corinthians 5 17 when he talks about us in the new birth we're new creations in Christ aren't we everything is new the old is gone behind us it's a new life you ever think about your own redemptive birthday maybe you can't put your finger on the exact day you can look at a season of time when it happened but you see when God has redeemed you kind of marks time all over again that's what Passover was for Israel it's what Passover should be for us is to think about this is foundational this is our beginning this is when we really live God's redemption is foundational marks a new beginning secondly God's redemption this is the way we think about it and we should think about it God's redemption is sacrificial God's redemption is sacrificial this is in verses 3 through 13 and this is likely the most important element understanding redemption without a sacrifice if you don't have a sacrifice you have no salvation there's no redemption if there's no sacrifice but it's important for us then to ask ourselves the question then what is God actually signifying through a sacrifice? I've had conversation with non-Christians before and they ask a legitimate question. Why do you believe in such a bloody religion? It's so violent and it is. In fact, I think it's far more violent and far more bloody than most of us Christians actually think about. What is God signifying? What is he emphasizing? Well, this is what I want to talk about for just a little bit. So just so you know, this is the longest point of the sermon, all right? Settle in. I'm not going to belabor it too much, but I want you to think it through with me. Think through these these different aspects involved in the emphasis of sacrifice. First of all, when we talk about sacrifice, we mean the sacrifice is a substitute for you. When you think about sacrifice, what you think about is the sacrifice is actually a substitute for you. I mean, look at verse 3. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, they are each one to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's household, a lamb for each household. Did you see that? A lamb for themselves, for each household this lamb was for them it was a substitute for them now all the congregation is to do this they are referred here not as just the general the Hebrew people anymore they're now referred to as the congregation of Israel remember they have a starting day they have a nation they're a nation now this is a people that now belongs to God now, I don't know how Moses made this announcement to the entire congregation of Israel. As we'll learn later in the chapter, there's at least 600,000 men in addition to all the little ones and others who have attached themselves to the nation. Did Moses actually stand up in front of 2 million people without amplification and tell them all of this? I, it's hard for me to see that. It's very possible that what he did was communicate through the leaders like he will. We'll see that later in the chapter. And they then began to disperse this information to the people. But he's he's telling the whole congregation. He's dispensing this information to them. And he tells them on the 10th day. Now, why the 10th day of this first month? Why not on day one? Why the 10th day? I don't know. I looked. I couldn't find a reason. Now, you could speculate and read something into it. I, I don't know. But it does remind me often when I see how explicit God is with the commands, that every time that I'm tempted to use this phrase, well, God doesn't care about, I just need to slap myself on the cheek, you know, and say, no, God cares about everything. There's not anything that he's like random about. There's not anything out there that he doesn't care about. A sovereign God cares about everything, doesn't he? So the 10th day, he has a reason. Maybe in heaven he says, now let me tell you what the reason is. Or maybe he said the reason is so that you would pay attention. So that you would pay attention. On the 10th day, you had to be explicit because God was explicit. So each one is to take a lamb for themselves. And we're not even told here why it had to be a lamb. I mean, there will be other sacrifices, bulls, doves. There's other things that would be sacrifices. There were other animals that were sacrificed in the past. Why a lamb? Maybe it was because Israel was an agricultural people at the time. Remember, they were shepherds, and what did the Egyptians think of shepherds? Well, they hated them so much that they gave Israel their own piece of Egypt so they wouldn't have to deal with Israel because they didn't like shepherds. And obviously, the shepherding image plays a large role in how God pictures himself and the Messiah and us as the flock of God. What's interesting to note The first use of the term, translated here as lamb, the first use of that term is found in Genesis chapter 22, verses seven and eight. You know what's in Genesis 22? Does that ring a bell to you? It should. That's a very important chapter in Genesis. I mean, they all are, but that's a really important chapter in Genesis. It's when Isaac spoke to his father Abraham as they're going up to Mount Moriah saying, Father, I see the wood, I see the fire, where is the where's the lamb? That's the first time that word is used. The next time in scripture that word is used is right here in Exodus 12. It is almost as if in the revelation of God, he wanted Israel to think of Genesis 22 when he said go get a lamb lambs were known for being offerings but normally burnt offerings burnt offerings were the most common kinds of offerings and they were almost always consumed on the altar by the fire not consumed by the person by eating it but that's what's happening here now isaac when he was going up on the mountain with his father he knew the purpose of a lamb a lamb was a substitute So, Father, there's fire and there's wood. Where's the lamb? And Abraham says, well, God's going to provide one. Now, in Abraham's mind, it was Isaac because that's what he was told. You're going to offer up your only son. And then there was that wonderful expression of substitution, wasn't there? As he took the knife to put it across his son's throat to drain his son's blood from his body and watch his life slip away, there caught in the bush was a substitute. Because the lamb or the sacrifice, whatever it was, is always viewed as a substitute for the one doing the worshiping. It should be you paying the price. Now here in the text in Genesis 12, it is a lamb according to their father's household, a lamb for each household. Every family unit was the foundational building block of a nation or even a society. They all would have a replacement, Now, as we will see, the lamb will not be offered up on an altar. It's not going to be consumed by fire. It's going to be consumed by every individual in the family. But the first thing you need to see is that what is a sacrifice? A sacrifice is a substitute for you. It should be you. God's grace substitutes an animal in your place. Second... We learn about sacrifice here and we should think about it in this way. The sacrifice is sufficient for you. It's sufficient for you. Verse 4. Now if the household is too small for a lamb then he and his neighbors nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of the persons in them according to what each man should eat you are to divide the lamb. So if a lamb would be far more than a very small family could consume than the one offered by the neighbor would be sufficient in other words this lamb is sufficient for everyone who will partake of it no one's going to be left out it will cover everyone for whom it was intended everyone who wants to be identified with this act of redemption can be even if they don't have the means Or if a lamb is beyond their ability to consume, the sacrifice of the Passover is going to cover all the people. No household is to be left out. A third way to think about sacrifice is found in verse 5. The sacrifice is worthy of God. The sacrifice is worthy of God. Look at verse 5. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old, You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. It's to be young. It's not an overworked lamb. It's not at the end of its life. It's at the beginning, though it is weaned. It's not an infant. It's an animal in its prime. It's the most valuable of the flock. It's the one that would be the most valuable to the family. And you have to examine it. Again, God isn't interested in you just walking out into the flock and grabbing one by the scruff and throwing it into the kitchen and say, butcher it and eat it. Now, I want you to go through the flock and find the best one, one that has no blemish, the one that you would actually want to keep for yourself. That's the one I want you to give to me in your place. It has to be worthy of God. There's no errant spot it doesn't have a lame leg it doesn't have a blind eye this is the kind of animal that you look at it and says that's a complete animal it's it's the perfect one this is about worship isn't it redemption is about worship and when we talk about the word worship what does it mean well it comes from the old english word worth ship meaning what you bring reveals how worthy you think god is If you bring a sacrifice that is the worst of your flocks, what you yourself wouldn't even want, what you don't mind getting rid of, what does that say about God? What does that say about your view of God? What does that say about your view of worship? I mean, think about this, friends. What what you think about God is what you bring to worship. Again, as soon as you start saying, God doesn't care about, stop yourself. Yes, he does. Yes, he does. What you think about God is what you bring to worship. It should be worthy of him. That's gonna become the standard for all future worship. What is worship has to be acceptable to a holy God. Not just what you and I think that'll do you never use that phrase in terms of the worship of God that'll do fourth another way to think about sacrifice the sacrifice identifies you it identifies you now this is really significant in verses six and seven you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. Why do you have to keep this animal for four more days? So we we pick it out on the 10th day of the beginning of our month. We got to keep it separate for four more days and on the 14th day is when we're going to actually do something with it. Why why do we do that? Well, I think you want to ensure that it is healthy, that it is worthy, that it doesn't have any problems. You're separating it from all the others to really put a unique value on it. It's distinct, it's a purposeful animal. You want to really separate this lamb or this goat from all the others for one singular purpose which says you are being purposeful in the way you approach this worship. Think about it, for four days you're going to feed it and you're going to protect it as if it is something very unique and special that's going to be offered in your place to God signifying your redemption. Do you see how God is calling them to think with great detail and purposefulness about this sacrifice? There is nothing casual, random, or meaningless about their approach to redemption. Likely another reason for the delay is so that the whole entire family could be identified with this animal. They've separated it. The whole family's gonna recognize this animal. I don't know if they named it like some of you do, your animals. I've, I've heard of that. Like the England clan, you name your cows before you kill them, right? Yeah, they name them and they, they celebrate eating Bessie or whoever it is, you know, while they, it's like a family event. Maybe that's the idea. But there is some sense in which they're identifying themselves with this particular animal that will be offered in just a few days. There's an anticipation that builds towards the sacrifice. Verse 6 goes on to say the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel, the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel, not just calling them the Hebrews again, but the assembly of the congregation of Israel, the name by which they're going to be known as a nation from here on out. I don't know that this means that they all did one gathering of all two million people at one time and they met in somehow the the city square of Goshen and slit their animals' throats together. I think they all did it wherever they did it, in their homes respectively, at the same time, at about twilight. But they all did it together. It's as if it's a reminder. It's not just me being redeemed, but he's redeeming an entire people that we belong to. And they kill it at twilight. Thinking about twilight means they're right on the verge of judgment. God's judgment comes after twilight. It comes at midnight. And just before the day slips into the night, they are to kill this animal and thereby go to sleep resting in the fact that God has saved them from judgment. And they're to kill it. The word actually should be translated more likely they should slaughter it. To slaughter the sacrificial animal was graphic to say the least. It was to slit the throat of the animal and drain its blood into a basin, the blood representative of the life as the blood exited the animal, the life, they actually watched the life of the animal go away and when you know that that animal represents you That is very picturesque, isn't it? The blood is drained and then the animal is actually dismembered. That's exactly what Abraham was going to do to his son Isaac. In fact, where that word lamb was first used in the Bible in Genesis 22 and next used in Exodus 12, the word slaughter was first used in Genesis 22 of that offering And it's next used here in in Exodus 12. As if to again solidify in your mind. There's a connection here of sacrifice and what happened with Abraham and his son. And what God is doing in redemption for his people. It's really picturesque. It's a graphic act. Act. You, you kind of wonder, if we had to sacrifice animals, would we, and we watch their life drain away, I wonder if we would take sin more seriously. Nah, it'd be like brushing teeth. We don't take that very serious. We do it every day. We just kind of do it. We'd kill animals. We'd watch it go away. It'd become old hat. We just got to do this to satisfy some religious function. It's kind of like showing up to church on Sunday. Maybe becomes tradition I mean after all how 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 much does it really strike you that the son of God was actually slaughtered for your sin you think an animal would make that more picturesque in your mind than actually Jesus Christ the sinless son of God if that doesn't mean anything to you but that was the idea. It's the worshiper that had to kill the animal because it was his sin that was being put on that animal and being paid for and redeemed and they had to watch that life go away just as we think on the Messiah. Look at verse seven. They shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts of the doorposts and on the lentil of the houses in which they eat it. Why? An interesting note I learned this week from commentator Dwayne Garrett he notes that excavations at Amarna, which is an ancient Egyptian city in the 1300s BC, have revealed that during the Egyptian New Kingdom, aristocrats advertised their ownership of their houses by having their names painted in brightly colored hieroglyphs on the doorposts and the lintels of their homes. Thus the placing of the blood of the Passover lamb on the same locations on the house of the Hebrews may have signified Yahweh's ownership of those homes. What does that mean? You sacrifice the animal and you take its blood and you put it on the doorposts and the lintel of the home to say, we completely identify ourselves as under the name of Yahweh and the redemption of Yahweh. Yahweh's redemption becomes our identity. That's fascinating. Complete, total identification of an entire people by one substitutionary sacrifice for the redemption of sin. And think about this also. What if you were a Hebrew, and you didn't participate in this act? You wouldn't be redeemed. You didn't get redemption because you were just an ethnic Hebrew. You were redeemed because of a sacrifice, and if you didn't personally identify yourself with that sacrifice, you would not experience the redemption. It required personal involvement, personal conviction that this animal sacrifice represented my life. And the death of that animal meant Israel, as a people, they were not sinless. You think about that? See, this whole time we've been talking about the sin of the Egyptians The idolatry of the Egyptians. What does this sacrifice say about Israel's own sin? They needed a sacrifice. They were not sinless. It's it's very much like the the idea that the Apostle Paul picks up in Romans chapters 1 through 3. You know in Romans chapter 1, he hammers the Gentile, the pagan world, giving them over to their own hearts just like God did with Pharaoh. But in Romans 2 and 3, he turns his attention to the Jews who assume that they have the covenants of God. They certainly should be okay, right? But you remember Romans 3, verse 9. Paul, the Hebrew of the Hebrews, asks, what then? Are we Jews better than they? Not at all, for we have... Already charged that both Jew and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous. Can you finish the phrase? No, not one. If you want redemption, you have to have the sacrifice. We've already seen Israel sin. You remember when Moses went to them and said, hey, I showed up here to bring you out of Egypt. And they're like, what? You? In fact i don't know if you remember this but joshua makes a very interesting statement about israel when they were in egypt as joshua was leading them into the promised land joshua 24 verse 14 it says therefore fear the lord and serve him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in egypt did you ever think about that for Hundreds of years, it's very likely that Israel was not singularly devoted to Yahweh. Buying into some of the paganism of the Egyptians. Thus, they need redemption. In fact, throughout these plagues, what's fascinating to me, we've been told almost nothing about how Israel was responding to the plagues in Egypt. We don't know what they were doing. I mean, they had been separated from some of the effects of the plagues. What were they thinking when that happened? Well, this act would show what they were thinking. If you really believed that God had singled out Israel as a people and he was about to redeem them, you would take the, the lamb and slaughter it and you would put the blood on the doorposts and the lintel because you believed God was going to save you and you knew judgment was coming. Now it's a fair question to ask whether the Egyptians knew about this act. Could the Egyptians do this? Could they participate and say, let me go get a lamb. I've seen nine plagues before this. We've got nothing to eat. We have no animals. This is devastating. We're on the verge of extinction ourselves. We were the greatest power in the world. I'm getting me a lamb. Could they do it? It's a good question to ask. We're only told here that Moses brought this information to the Israelites. But I want you to quickly note, you could look at verse 43 of chapter 12. In verse 43, I find this interesting and maybe helpful to us in answering the question. Verse 43 says, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the ordinance of the Passover. What's the next phrase? No foreigner is to eat it. But every man's slave purchased with money after you have circumcised him, When? when can your slave eat it? After he becomes an Israelite. Then he may eat of it. A sojourner or a hired servant shall not eat it. Why? Because they're just traveling with you. They're not becoming a part of you. It is not to be eaten by in a single house you're to bring forth any of the flesh outside the house nor are you to break any bone. All the congregation of Israel are to celebrate this. So could the Egyptians do this? Sure, if they renounce being an Egyptian. Sure, if you want to become a part of Israel, circumcision and all. If you want to identify yourself completely with Yahweh as his people, you can participate. If you want to remain an Egyptian and you just want to be saved from the judgment to come, temporally but you don't want to be known as God's Yahweh's people no this is only for those who totally identify themselves with the sacrifice the sacrifice identifies you let me show you another way to think about sacrifice the sacrifice separates you it separates you look look at verse 8 They shall eat the flesh that same night roasted with fire and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water, but rather roasted with fire, both its head and its legs along with its entrails. And you shall not leave any of it over until morning, but whatever is left of it until morning you shall burn with fire. Now you shall eat it in this manner, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. What's being emphasized here? What's being emphasized from verses 8 to 11 is haste. Roasting would be the quickest way to cook the animal. Boiling would take time. It would take more time. But there to view this as something that's done hastily. You're quickly separating yourself from Egypt. You're dressed as if you're ready to run. Your loins girded means you have a belt around your your waist. Your tunic is, is bound so that you can run if you need to run. You can move quickly. Can't be raw. I mean, that would be the quickest way, but they're not to eat things with life still in it. So this has to show haste. We're getting out of Egypt. We're not lingering in Egypt anymore. It it, it looks at separation. Why bitter herbs? Well, the only other place the word bitter is used in the book of Exodus is in Exodus one fourteen, where the Egyptians made the Hebrews' lives bitter with hard labor. They eat the bitter herbs to remind themselves what they experienced in Egypt that they're running away from nothing was to be left over you're not going to take a lunch with you into the wilderness of that lamb you're not taking anything out of egypt with you other than the spoil that they give you you're leaving it all behind egypt is left behind and it has to be total consumption that's another idea here total consumption the whole animal is roasted the whole animal is cooked and, and the way he speaks of it, it doesn't mean that the whole thing's just kept intact, but it's all of it is used, all of it is used, and it's all consumed. You consume it personally, you destroy anything left because you're not bringing it with you. Redemption burns away all of the past life and sets you free to get out away from that sinful life into the life of being God's people and did you see the end of the phrase in verse 11 it is Yahweh's Passover it's the first word first time the word Passover is used this is something Yahweh does this is something that belongs to him this is something that is about him Never think of redemption as primarily about you or me. Yes, we are redeemed, but it is all about him. He does it, he owns it, he accomplishes it. And don't forget, don't forget, this is all about God exalting himself as the one true God. Look at verse 12. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and I will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And what's, look at this next phrase. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. So we've been saying all this time, haven't we, as we go through the plagues, this is God attacking the gods of Egypt. Now it's not, One God per plague, one God in Egypt per plague. That's not what's going on. Every time God brought a plague on Egypt, he was attacking all of their gods. Now, there were certain gods they would appeal to for sure, but every plague attacked the entire system of idolatry in Egypt. Why? He's telling them, there's not one God you have that can save you from me. I am the only God, and if I am the only God, I'm the only one that can redeem. He is a sovereign redeemer. He's the only redeemer. There's not equal paths to redemption from other ways and religions and idolatries. There's one single unique redeemer every other path to try to find satisfaction in life, redemption in life, peace in life, it's empty. It's empty. And have you noticed the way God works with us in such a way that he keeps prying our fingers off all the things we want to hold on to in this world that we think is going to make us more satisfied than the things of God? He's not doing that to harm us, but to redeem us, isn't he? Taking these firstborn animals, these firstborn people in judgment. What is God saying when he does that? I'm going to take these firstborn out. What is he saying? Life belongs to me. I preserve it in redemption, I'll take it in judgment. pretty profound isn't it look look at the end of verse 12 again how does it end I am Yahweh there's a lot I'd like to say about that but I I can't do a lot of it now but can I just note this one thing okay I'm going to that phrase I am Yahweh If I were you, every time I'm reading through the law, you know, all those tedious laws, especially in Leviticus, and especially if you read through Leviticus 18, 19, 20, it's called the moral code, the holiness code. The singular motivation for why you obey God and his law, it's said over and over and over and over. You obey him because I am Yahweh. You don't obey him because he, he lists out for all the benefits you'll get from this. All the good things that you'll get from this. I am Yahweh. So if you obey the law, it's because you say, he is God and I am not. He is God and he's higher. He is God and he knows more. He is God and he's wiser. He's God and he's loving. You're acknowledging who he is and that you come underneath that. I am Yahweh. So if you obey this command for this sacrifice you do so because he alone is Yahweh and you're acknowledging that it totally separates you you do all that you do in life because of redemption because of who God is God defines you he separates you from everything else and everyone else it's pretty profound on sacrifice isn't it it's how we're to think about it So, God's redemption is foundational, it's sacrificial, another way to think about it, one final, and this will be quick, it's worshipful, it's worshipful. Just read through verses 14 to 20 with me, just follow along as I read it. Now this day will be a memorial to you, and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, but on the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats anything leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall have a holy assembly, and another holy assembly on the seventh day. No work at all shall be done on them except what must be eaten by every person. That alone may be prepared by you. You shall also observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a permanent ordinance. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month, that evening you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month, that evening. Seven days there shall be no leaven found in your houses, for whoever eats what is leavened, that person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is an alien or a native of the land, You shall not eat anything leavened. In all your dwellings, you shall eat unleavened bread. Have you ever read something like that and wondered, why why is God repeating himself just in a matter of verses there? It's almost like he knows us. You weren't paying attention the first time. You need to hear it again. Redundancy is helpful to your sinful soul. Listen to it again and again. But note, it is a memorial. It is a feast to the Lord. It is to be celebrated as a permanent ordinance. A memorial means that it's an intentional, formal act of recalling, remembering what God has done. It's an act of remembrance. It's called a feast, and a feast is a very specific word in Hebrew that talks about a festival, or think of it as a holiday. You're to make this a distinct day like a holiday when you you don't go into work, And you dedicate the whole time to remembering what God has done in redemption. And it's to be a permanent ordinance. As long as you are a nation, you will do this sacrifice. You will honor this memorial, this remembrance. As long as you are my people, this is what you do. And there's going to be a gathering, a holy convocation, he calls it. I don't know that they'd ever had any holy convocations until this point. Now, later, when they get out into the wilderness in Leviticus 23, the Lord's going to spend a lot of time defining what holy convocations are. So we'll wait till we get to Leviticus 23, and hopefully we're all still alive in 20 years when we get there, and we can talk about it then. But it's a day dedicated completely to Yahweh, recognizing his otherness, his distinction, and our devotion to that distinction. But verse 17 points us to the fact that they will observe the feast of unleavened bread. You take all of the leaven out of your house on the first day and you don't reintroduce it until the seventh day. And and notice this recurrence of seven days. Why, what would that make you think of? Well, Genesis, God, creation. All of this is about God. He keeps drawing you back to that reality. But why unleavened bread? If you're having a festival, I want the leaven, right? If it's a party, I want the yeast. Well, leaven is not marked out here as something sinful per se. It's just forbidden during this time period. They could use leaven at other times. What is leaven? Well, it's kind of like starter dough. It's bread dough that's been aired out in the sun and it picks up some of the airborne yeast spores and then it's dipped in wine or in vinegar and it's put in a container and covered until it, ferments and then you introduce it into other dough and it rises it's a way to create great bread but in other words this bread that is full of yeast and took time to rise I don't want you to do that because I want you out of Egypt I don't want you lingering in Egypt any longer And the leaven reminds you, you don't stick around in the land I'm redeeming you from. You get out of there. They're to leave immediately, turn away from Egypt. You don't look back. I think that's where the idea of leaven gets its sinful connotations at times, is because you want to get out of Egypt and not linger in what caused you to sin. And if you don't acknowledge this, if you don't do this, if you say, no, I like my leaven, I'm going to party with it, what does verse 19 say? You will be cut off. What does that mean? You'll no longer be considered an Israelite. You're outside the people of God. You're not a part of the covenant community anymore. You're outside of them because you're not identifying with the marks that define them. Redemption is the theme of the gathered, dedicated worship that they would experience. They would meet in a holy convocation and celebrate redemption together. That's a pretty profound way to think about redemption. It's foundational to who we are. It's sacrificial and all of that that it means and it's connected to our public worship. That's what redemption is about. That's how we're to think about it. Now I want to finish up quickly With verses 21 to 28, how do you respond? How do you respond? We will look at this quickly, but here Moses essentially gives all of the leaders of Israel all of the information that he's just been given and they're in turn gonna teach others about it. And here's how they're to respond. It's really very simple. Two ways to respond here. First, identify yourself with the redemption. Identify yourself with the redemption. Look at verse 21. Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and take for yourselves lambs according to your families and slay the Passover lamb. You shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood which is in the basin and apply some, some of the blood that is in it in the basin to the lintel and to the two doorposts and none of you shall go outside the door of his house until morning for Yahweh will pass through to smite the Egyptians and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts Yahweh will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to smite you everything here is about personal and corporate choice to identify completely with redemption you see why why hyssop what was that well it's it was just a plant it wasn't native to Israel it's a plant that they would use and they would just simply use it to paint the door of the house it really didn't mean anything until they used it for this hyssop has no inherent meaning until you use it for redemption and then from that point forward hyssop is always used through the old testament to refer to something that is cleansing from sin In fact, David describes it in his confession of his sin with Bathsheba in Psalm 51, verse 7 Purify me with hyssop. Not because there's something internal in hyssop, but because hyssop was used to mark redemption and cleansing from sin. And when God sees that blood, what does that mean? When God sees the fact that you chose to identify yourself with him and he sees that you put the marks of redemption over, he will pass over. He sees your faith. He sees you believed and your belief rescues you from judgment. He'll keep the destroyer from coming. What's the destroyer? Likely some angelic angelic being with God, and it's as if God stands guard over your house and makes the destroying angel pass by. You'll move on. Isn't that a wonderful picture of redemption? But you have to identify yourself with that. And then the second response is, you have to instruct others about God's redemption. You instruct others, that's what he says in verse 24. You shall observe this event as an ordinance for you and your children forever. And when you enter the land which the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall observe this right. And when your children say to you, What does this right mean to you? Don't miss that. To you. Does this mean something to you? You shall say, it is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians, but spared our homes. He redeemed us. And how did the people respond to that? And they bowed low and they worshiped and the sons of Israel went and did so just as The Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. What do they do? You instruct others. Now we'll talk about this more later, but it's really fascinating to trace how infrequently Israel is stated in the rest of the Old Testament to observe Passover. They'll have long swaths of their history where they'll never celebrate this ordinance. What does that do to them? It numbs them to the depths of what redemption really is. Accomplished and meant. This is why you're to do it regularly, to remember it. Now, we're going to have much more to say about this next time, but I, I hope you see that redemption is the theme here. And every element about this is all about redemption. Every element was so about the identity of Israel and God. That is why, listen carefully, it's not time to put your notes away. (laughs) Think about all that we've talked about. When John the Baptist in John 1 29 stood up and he looked and he pointed and said, behold, the Lamb of God, the Lamb of Yahweh who takes away the sin of the world do you know what those Israelites thought of? <laughs> when the Apostle Paul referred to Jesus in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7 as our Passover, what did he mean? When we're said to get the leaven of sin out of us, we're not to linger in the culture, we're not to keep the culture in us, we're to remove the culture from us. Because we've been redeemed. Luke tells us in Luke 22, 7, it was the first day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed when the events of Jesus' crucifixion began. What is he saying? How explicit is Peter when in 1 Peter 1, 18, he says, knowing that you were not Important word, redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of the Messiah. It was the Apostle John, In the book of Revelation, in chapter 5, who just wept bitterly, uncontrollably, crying when he noticed that the father had a scroll in his hand that contained all the information that would complete human history and complete redemption. And he looked around and John couldn't find anybody, anybody who could take the scroll from the hand and break the seals and bring about the finality of redemption until he saw says it very explicitly in Revelation chapter 5. John was told, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And John says, I looked up and saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slaughtered. What does that mean? And the lamb took the scroll and began to break its seals and finalize redemption. And the whole universe erupts in praise. So, no Israelite looked at Passover and said, our redemption is found in a little animal. They knew that animal represented something far greater. It is Christ. It is the Messiah. You want redemption, you have to identify your whole life in his sacrifice in your place. And that identifies us as a people. This is why it was the Passover meal that Jesus celebrated with his disciples and he took the bread and he broke it and said, take it and eat it as if you were identifying with him And you are now becoming his body. And you take the cup, which is the shedding of his blood, meaning he gave up his life for you in your place to satisfy the holiness of God on your behalf. And you consume it. And we do it all together regularly, as Jesus said, to remember, as if this is our memorial of our spiritual birthday, our independence day, as it were, when we became new creatures in Christ, liberated from sin. And that's why we do it together. It signifies who God's people are in this new covenant that he has established in his blood, which is what we want to celebrate together now. Let's pray together. Father, we know that the law and all that it contained in the old covenant is just a shadow of all the good things to come and that have come in Christ now. It's by his one offering, the Lord Jesus Christ, that he has now perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And we know that because we have forgiveness of our sin in Christ, we have no need for any other offering for sin. It is finished. I pray that we would celebrate that now as we take of the table and as we as your people identify ourselves with Christ, his sacrifice, as his body now on earth to represent him. Let us do that with purity and devotion Truthfulness in our hearts. Gratitude, because we know we don't deserve it. Anticipation, because we look forward to Jesus coming back and finishing what he has begun. We pray this will be a wonderful time of remembering Christ together. We pray in his name. Amen.